Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. What's up, y'all? This is Brother Ali in the mix with Tim Einekel on the library, rapstation.com. Keep it right here. On May 5th, my next guest will release his newest album, All the Beauty in This Whole Life, on the label Rhyme Sayers Entertainment. This incredible artist has been blessing us with lyrics, music for 17 years, and I'm honored to speak with him today. Brother Ali, welcome to the library with Tim Einekel on rapstation.com. Thank you, thank you. been trying to shut us down our whole life. I thank God for healing. You ain't got to get me lit. I got my own life. This is not a new album, but on the track, Us, from Us, you spit. I started rhyming so I can be somebody. Turns out I already was. Um, kind of expanding on that, and this is your sixth album, has the purpose for why you started rhyming changed? I mean, I think that it's always been a balance between who I am inwardly and outwardly. So, you know, writing music and the the act of creating music is really about exploring ourselves inwardly. And then the act of performing music is about expressing ourselves outwardly. So, you know, when I'm at home or with Ant or, you know, with one of my really, like, close collaborators, that's a really personal kind of thing. And then when we go out... And, and so, you know, by writing those songs, we learn more about ourselves, we explore ourselves, we uh, get to know all sorts of things about ourselves through any creative process. And then... When you bring it out to the world, then you start to uh, get a sense of who we are, you know, outwardly and socially and things like that. So I would say it's always been a mixture of those two. Turning back to this album, you said in an interview, I don't know, a while ago with Hip Hop DX, you talked about the album. You were in the middle of creating this album, and you said it wasn't, it was going to be a lot less overtly political. Um, at this time I was just curious when you said that kind of when were you writing the like where were we in now our political world uh, when you said that uh, do you think now that the album's complete that that statement still holds true for you um, and why did you decide to consciously to be uh, I guess less overtly political on this album well when I made the my last album was Morning in America Dreaming in Color most of the albums prior to that so if we look at all the things that I've released most of them are a mixture of autobiographical stuff. Some of them are, you know, rapping for the sake of trying to be excellent with the art form. Uh, a lot of the songs are have, you know, themes or their stories. And then some of them are overtly political. Some of them are very social. And they all tie together in one way or another. But on Morning in America, Dreaming in Color, I really leaned in on the political stuff a lot more. Um, and that was reflecting what was going on in my life where I started to, I basically had this trajectory where 
like I said, started rhyming just to be somebody. So like I did the first album just to show the world that I can rap. And I wanted to be respected as somebody who can make music. And I wanted to, you know, add my contribution into the world of hip hop. And so that album was everything that I could figure out how to do on one record. And then the next full length album, you know, in between those times, I got divorced and got custody of my son and we didn't have anywhere to live for a little while. And while that was going on, I actually did develop a career where people come to see me and they actually care about what I'm saying. And, you know, people like Chuck D are, you know, uh, my mentor and my friend now, you know, and Rakim brought me on tour. Brand Nubian brought me on tour. I did shows with Big Daddy Kane and Big Daddy Kane showing love. So the people that I came into this thing loving, respecting, admiring uh, my heroes, those people all showed me love in one way or another. And so I had this like really amazing growth period, but then also it was really difficult personally. And so I made the Undisputed Truth album, which was my second one. And that one is really autobiographical. And then those stories I told on that album. So then, like I said, you create an album uh, personally, you know, by yourself, and then you go out and perform it, you put it in the world and it starts to circulate around the, to the public or to people that you don't even know. And so, when that album came out, the response that I got from people was, I feel like you're telling my stories. And because of the way that I told the stories of, of my own personal life, uh, people connected with them. But then I also was noticing that a lot of the people that come to my shows didn't grow up in the environment that I grew up in. So I started wondering, can I tell stories that are never really told to the dominant culture? in a way that may make them feel a sense of kinship with them too. Like, okay, so if I can tell my stories, can I tell my friend's stories? So my friend Ethan Graham, that was my first friend when I moved to Minneapolis, beautiful guy, you know, funny, smart, you know, tap dancer, you know, artist, worked, always had a job, uh, but he also sold weed. He was murdered. He was shot in the head in front of his house. And the police never investigated it. And they and it went in the store a paper as this drug dealer got hit by by a stray bullet. You know, and so I know that like somebody will read that story and think like it's another black drug dealer. You know what I'm right, saying? Right, right. But I know the truth about that person. Whereas a lot of the people that come to my shows, they might not know that. They might not know somebody like that. So I made an album called Us, where I told all these other people's stories, but I didn't tell them from the perspective of like a third person narrative about somebody else. I told them in a first person way about loving them. So I didn't try to like tell Ethan's story for him. I just talked about what it's like to love somebody and then they are murdered and taken away from you and nobody cares because he's black and because you know part of his life was a street economy something that now is legal right right you know what i mean right. like so basically he was murdered and his case was thrown away and so his family never got closure because of something that now is legal you know what i mean super crazy you know so that us album was you know me getting a chance to work through that and then offer that to people the response for that one was great too so i started wondering okay so i tell these stories about people but will you actually come out and be activists to try to write some of these things to try to write some of these wrongs so on the morning in america album you know in my personal life i was getting more into organizing and activism and things like that and so 
we had a project called Occupy Homes where we were going to people's houses. Basically, like Occupy Wall Street was going on and there was Occupy in every city. So you had a bunch of young people whose parents come from the dominant culture, but they feel disenfranchised. So it was like, you know, maybe young, white, middle class people. But like they're realizing that the American dream isn't there for them and they're hip to why it is. They know that like it's not because Mexicans are stealing their jobs and it's not because black people are on welfare and it's not because any of this other stuff. It's because the people at the top are taking more and more for themselves and they're not paying for what they're receiving, the, the service they're receiving. So, you know, these people were putting their bodies on the line. And so we had a project where we went to the Occupy space and said, hey, there are black people in North Minneapolis and 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 white people and elders and veterans and moms and like a lot of people, but primarily mostly black and brown people are the banks are taking their house from them illegally and they're stealing the wealth out of their community by doing that. Because the bank gets to, they get a down payment, they get years of payments, and then they take the house away, and nobody really cares. And then they sell the house again, they get another down payment, they get years more, pay, you know. So this is just money that's being stolen, and, and, you know, what should be generational wealth is being stolen from these communities. Will you come chain yourself to a house? And this whole group of, like, young, white, middle-class kids did it we're like hell yeah i'll do that you know what i mean and they did it and i got to see that and it was really dope um so i made an album about kind of like inviting and calling people to that type of work but it's because that's what i was going through in my life so that album was a really overtly political album um and this new one all the beauty in the whole life basically you know, then I had a series of heartbreaks related to politics and I started realizing the worst of all of them was that I was feeling a sense of despair about what was going on and about the response that I was receiving versus the response that I thought I should be receiving. And I realized that, um, you know, Rumi says, the poet Rumi says, when I was young, I was clever and I wanted to change the world. Now I've grown old and wise and I want to change myself. So not that you ever have one without the other. The two are obviously connected. But what I realized is that along with we don't only have political problems, but our political problems stem from spiritual problems on a heart level, starting with myself. So I said, if I'm if I'm despair and I'm I'm and I'm feeling uh, like almost jaded because people that used to like my music now, they hate me because I'm talking about this stuff that they don't want to hear about. And now they're, you know, some of them are like threatening me and the government is messing with me and like all of this stuff. I started realizing that I need to work on myself and my ego is playing a big role in my activism and my organizing. You know, a lot of this is really my identity. A lot of this I didn't realize, you know, in anything good that we do, it's really easy for the ego to, to, to creep in without us realizing it. So every drug dealer knows like I'm doing this to get money. So that I can have money and have power and like there's no question about it. Everybody knows what the game is when you're doing something like that. But when you're trying to do something that's about God or something that's about truth or something that's about justice, it's a lot trickier to see when the ego slips in because the ego is like a straight ninja. Like it's, it's, it's really like, you know, oh, yes, yeah, you're so righteous and you're so you're the you know. And then it's it's very easy to go from knowing that the work is important or that the truth you're talking about is important 
and it's easy to start thinking I'm important mm-hmm. and really lose touch, you know. So I basically kind of walked, stepped away from the stage for a while, stepped away from talking so much, stepped away from the megaphone of the protest and the organizing and all that. And really was just like, let me look inward and like, let me let me really explore what's going on in me. And let me try to become more aware of my own heart so that I can have a better grasp and, and uh, on what it is that I'm here to do and what I actually think I'm doing. So I started really pursuing the the Muslim elders who are people of spirituality. They, you know, they, some people call them the Sufis. But these people, these like masters of the Islamic tradition who really focus on the heart, who really focus on beauty and love and truth and how to, you know, all of our activism or all of our creativity and all of our art, all of this stuff, it all comes from our heart. And whatever's going on in our heart, we're pushing that and forcing that on people. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So how do I get the heart right? How do I, how do I get my instrument right? You know, my, my instrument, I'm, I'm th- the whole time I'm thinking is my vocal cords. And it's not. It's my heart, you know. So I spent several years sitting with them, traveling to visit them all over the world, you know, the Middle East, Europe, Africa, you know, Asia, wherever they are, that's where I'm trying to go. And um, so they're the ones that actually gave me the idea to make this particular album. And the idea is that beauty is the outward manifestation of virtue. Beauty is the outward manifestation of truth and of uh, love. And Dr. Cornell West says that justice is what beauty looks like in public. You know what I'm saying? And so all these things are absolutely connected. And uh, so this album is completely about that idea. Did you completely stop writing? I mean, when you walked away? I mean, because from an outside perspective, I imagine, I mean, the one thing I love about your work is that you you it obviously comes from the heart but it's like you're speaking not about yourself but also you you speak for the voiceless but i also imagine when someone who speaks a lot about speaks about themselves in their own rhymes it's kind of a therapeutic it's therapeutic for them um so that's why i'm asking are you did you totally walk away from it all or and how much did you miss writing if you did just completely stop writing in those few years? I really did stop writing almost completely. During the, that period, of I wrote one song. I, and um, it's on the album. It's called Dear Black Son. And it's exactly what it sounds like. You know, I have like a series of songs that are from my son, Fahim. Right. And now he's 16 years old. And so... This is a song about him as a young man and the way that the world views him and um, my advice for him in terms of how to understand that or just what I can offer him. And a lot of what I'm offering him is I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, don't, I can't protect you like I want to. I can't help you. I love you. And that's really all I can do. That's all anyone can ever do you know, is, is love each other. We try to do things. You know, sometimes we're, they're successful or not, but... So that was the only song that I wrote. Um, in terms of expressing, yeah, I mean, I think definitely when I write songs, it's usually because I've had some pain and then I've healed. And so I write a song. I don't write songs just about pain. Like I usually won't sit down to write a song about something while I'm going through it. 
it usually will be once I'm either healed or I'm in the process of healing, like the healing has begun. So that was true for my divorce and that was true for, uh, you know, my parents dying and so many things, you know. I really write from a place of healing and then talk about what that journey is like. Instead of write songs, though, I had the beautiful opportunity to speak to people and to teach. And so that's what I, that's, that was my outlet during that time period. One of the tracks on the album you just mentioned, Dear Black Sun, um, you, you, you touch on a lot of topics in that track. Um, and I, I always wonder the, the unfortunate thing about that, what you touch on is that it doesn't seem like it's going to go away. Um, mm-hmm. and so for you as an, I imagine as a human, that is just the toughest thing to imagine that this stuff is not going away. But as an artist, there's a weird beauty in that. No, I mean, in terms of like, this is my timeless song and people could always go back to it if they need some sort of healing. Uh, what is your take on that? Well, I mean, suffering and, and pain and injustice is, uh, is uh, that th- these are some of the qualities of this existence, you know? Right. Um, you know the the all of the people of spirituality have some version of we existed before we were in this space and time and in these bodies. All of them have that in common, and including Islam. So we believe that we were all together, that the Creator had all of the human beings that would ever exist together, and we witnessed to certain truths, and that was one of the stages of the life, one of the one of the lives that human beings live. And then we transition from that one to this one. And then after this one, uh, there will be other lifetimes that won't be in this space and time. But also, every wisdom tradition says that there's something after this. Uh, None of them say that this is it, because that's what the spiritual path is about. You know, the spiritual path is about, like, yeah, the, the world of forms and material things is real for this this part of our lives. But that's not all we are and that's all spirituality is about so when people say that they're anti-religion or or you know these are like ways for human beings to talk about something that's impossible to talk about and to access something that uh, is very difficult for a lot of people to access which is the life of meaning and the life of spirituality and stuff like that so you know pretty much all of them say that we had a life before this. And in that life is when we're informed about what we believe in. And what we believe in is universal. Like all, all, nobody believes that it's okay to be oppressed. Nobody believes it's okay to physically harm each other. You know, nobody really believes that. And so the, the quality of this part of this space and time is that there'll be, there'll be uh, inequity here. And there'll be injustice here, you know, but that these things are they're here because they're the perfect test for us. So we're never quiet and we never stop fighting. But or I would say and we recognize that uh, that fight that whatever fight we find ourselves in to try to promote truth and beauty and peace and justice and all the beautiful things that all human beings are rooted in. That fight is 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 necessary, and it's an, it's we're not us without that fight, and so I would love for the phenomenon of um, 
you know, this this big, confusing, horrific affair of whiteness that's just destroyed everybody, the, the modern world. And by that, I do not mean European people or people whose ancestors are from Europe, and so their skin is light. That's, that's not what I mean, because that group of people has existed for how many thousands of years? Uh, you know, they, they uh, changed or ad- adapted to colder climates. You know, all signs point to the first people being African. And then they changed and adapted. Now, the people they changed and adapted into call it evolved. <laughs> because they said, we were we were very, you know, crude beings when we were in Africa. And now we've evolved. You know what I'm saying? So now we, uh, you know, all this weird stuff that, that has come with that. Um, that basically created the modern world. The modern world as it is, it could have become modern in a different way. It became modern in the way that it, the specific way that it did through things like colonialism, uh, you know, through things like destroying all alternative cultures so that there's one monoculture that the entire world has to accept. Um, you know, and that's the real reason why we're at war with the, the, the modern world is at war with Islam because it's done everything it can to stomp out all cultures that existed, all ways of being that existed before it. And, uh, you know, with the First Nations people, they just outright slaughtered as many people as they could, um, took their children away from them and put them in, in you know, the white man's schools, uh, you know, did everything they could to stomp out this tradition. Whereas with Islam, it's a global, universal tradition that exists in every culture. So it's very difficult to just end that tradition. So, you know, this is, this is one of their main competitors for worldview. Um, and in that idea, in this modernist worldview, European people were convinced to give up their legacy and their lineage and their cultures and their languages and their, their ways of, of understanding the meaning of life and trade it in for this new one which is whiteness. And you say, okay, well, what is whiteness, though? What does it really mean when you boil it down? It doesn't have any meaning other than you're higher in the food chain in a white supremacist system. And it had, you know, and then also hyper-competitive individual economics has to be part of that, too. So that's all it means, because there's people in Thailand walking around that think they're white. Because they're the lightest people in that society. There's people in Pakistan that are like the white Pakistanis. But if they come to America or to Europe, they're not white anymore. So were they ever white? They were white and they were were the lightest people where white supremacy went. You know what I'm saying? So this is an idea that doesn't have any real roots. And so you have so many people... I'm on tangent 12 right now. But if you work with Chuck, then you're you're used to tangents. <laughs> Chuck is my is my big brother, man. He's my father in a lot of ways. So I, like I pray to be like him and one of the ways I am is that we get off on these tangents. But um, you know, what are the uh, like like what does this stuff actually mean and how does it actually work? So if a if a person is a descendant of Europe. They're raised in a society where for 500 years they've been told it doesn't matter that your people were Celtic or or Germanic or uh, Greek or Russian or like none of that really matters. What matters is that you're white. That's who you are. Before you get a chance to make a decision about who you are, you're white. So then what's that really mean, though? Does It means you are better than other people. 
okay, what well, does it mean that I'm going to get to share equally in all of the stuff of society? No, not really. You'll just get a little bit more than the other people, but you don't really get to make decisions. You know what I mean? You get some, you get more mobility, you get more freedom psychically and psychologically. You get to know that you're, that you're free to be you, but not really because the real you was stolen. The you of your ancestry and your lineage was stolen. And, you know, even if you say like, okay, I'm Polish, even if you do ancestry.com and find that out, what does that mean, though? Because if you go to Poland, you're going to find the same YouTube and McDonald's and everything else that you have here. Right. So you can't really even go to Poland and really feel what that really means in terms of how do we live as Polish people or how do we live as Germans or how do we, you know, that stuff is gone. So if the only thing is that I'm supposed to be better than somebody else, then what happens when I decide that I don't want to be better than anybody else anymore? Like like this idea of white supremacy hasn't served me. Like then what? You know what I'm saying? Who are who am I after that? And so that's that's one of the things that made Malcolm X when he went on Hajj, when he went on his pilgrimage, his whole adult life, he knew that Islam was allowing black Americans to completely radically redefine their whole identity based on the fact that, no, I existed before your idea of the world existed. I'm a, I come from an ancient people that, you know, and when he went to, when he went to Mecca, he saw entire, he saw that there's whole nations of people that would be called white. They're European. They have blonde hair, blue eyes or red hair or light brown hair or whatever. They would be white. They are white people by white people by whiteness standards but he said but they're not white they're human beings and like i ate out of the i mean when you go to those cultures and like literally like a you know and uh a old man is sitting there like peeling an orange for you or like cutting an apple for you and every and is handing you one bite at a time you know what i'm saying and he's like literally feeding you from his hands or um you know you go somewhere and if somebody is even a, a week younger than you, they're serving you like an elder. So like you're, you're with your homie and maybe you're 30 and he's 28. He's opening your car door. He's getting your shoes. He, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And everybody's like that. And it's like, man, this is not, this is not whiteness. Like this is something else. These people believe a different way. They don't think they're smarter than their parents and they don't think they're smarter than their ancestors. Then they don't think that modern people are inherently superior to people before them. You know, they actually believe it's the opposite. They believe that things go downhill. So our ancestors are better than us and they knew stuff that we didn't know. So kind of all this stuff is um, is is what I've been exposed to uh, that has really done a lot to affect my heart and, and what I want to present the world. So I made this album uh, before, uh, you know, this person was elected to be the president. But And I wasn't thinking about that, really. But I was thinking about, I just want to contribute to beauty. I just want to reflect beauty, amplify beauty. That's what I'm focused on right now. And it's a very it's been very healing for me. And then I finally heard the whole album together. All, you know, you do the mastering, and so you hear it as, an, as a full project uh, right after the election. And I was so grateful that this is what I get to put in. This is what I get to offer. Who, whatever part of the world feels like listening to me, this is what I have to offer right now. Literally, a whole album about love, beauty, truth, connectedness, intention, service. 
You know what I'm saying? No, and, it feels like the most freaking like radical thing I could do in this moment. And in a, and in a way, it, it it is political, right? I mean, like, yeah. yeah. I mean, talking about love is a political, you know, is you know, in a strange way, in a political statement. Or talking about what everything you talk about in this album, you know, the suicides of your father and grandfather, mm-hmm. your black son, um, pen to paper. Uh, yeah, I think it. Depending who's listening, it to be like, oh yeah, this is. Like they could listen to like, oh, this is a love, you know, this is album about love, but but then you could also have those people who are like, oh, this is definitely this one of Ali's, you know, big political album, you know, stuff like that. I mean, it depends on the year. In a way, yeah. And that's why I go back to the statement of of Dr. Cornell West, who said that justice is what love looks like in public. You know, that uh, justice is public love. Pen to paper, the the, the first track on the album um, mm-hmm. starts with Saul Williams. Uh, I believe that's Saul Williams. That's Amir Suleiman. Ah, and he, I believe, is the greatest poet. And Saul Williams is my friend. And Saul Williams is more of a poet than I could ever be. But I believe Amir Suleiman is the greatest living poet. I really thoroughly believe that. I think that what he's offering is more profoundly beautiful and powerful than what any other person using words is using is doing i mean every rapper every singer every writer every poet nobody is using words the way that that man is doing it and he's my dear friend like we live together in oakland and um i'm just yeah just utterly in awe in love in friendship in witnessing like i'm just witnessing this man and he so he kind of narrates the album his voice comes back throughout the album and um yeah so it starts with him is that i was thinking about you obviously you're a lyricist and you but you know mcs have beats you know music to go with their lyrics i always especially when i was younger i always argued like i used to work with the youth and uh I was working with them at a time when Jay-Z, uh, Big Pimping came out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always, like, my big examples was just taking lyrics from Big Pimping versus taking lyrics from where I'm from and then having my seven, eight, ninth graders look at the lyrics like, all right, what's more poetic to you? And nine times out of ten, they always picked where I'm from. Um, you as an artist, do you, when you're writing, are you trying to write as a poet in a way i mean are you picking your words more carefully you feel because you want them to stand alone on paper versus like having to have this amazing beat behind you just to get the listener to listen to what you're saying i mean i think that the beat is is part of the statement and i choose the words that are most true that are most i'm kind of i'm i'm trying to report on what's going on in my heart uh, rather than spin it a certain way, you know. So the the beats that I choose, I choose those because they reflect something that's going on in me. Like this beat sounds like the, what I feel mm-hmm. in these type of moments, or when I'm on this kind of vibe. This beat sounds like what happens in my heart at that in that moment. So that's how I pick the beat, and then I write about what that feels like. And and when it's a story. It's like you need to know the story. Telling you the story is the only way to tell you how I feel about this. Uh, on pen to paper, you spit, this is more than music. This is ancestors speaking through me. Um, why did you choose rap and hip-hop cultures to be the kind of the, the vessel for to speak for your ancestors? Because uh, that's, the, that's the culture that I was raised in, and that's the culture that I'm embrace me and that's where my home has always been from the time i was a little kid from the time i was 
you know, six, seven years old. That's been it. And when I say ancestors, I don't only mean, you know, blood lineage, right. although I, they're included. They're definitely included. Um, and it's important that we never uh, diss our, our ancestors and our lineage. That's a really important thing. And that's something that um, people in this modern, especially in, in the U.S., are cut off from, the, from our lineage. Um, you know, African people, it was done really uh, violently. You know, you're not allowed to know. So you're not allowed to be with people that speak the same language as you. You know, if you speak Mandinka, you can't be with somebody that speaks Wolof. You can't do it. Uh, you know, or Jola or something, you know, you'd be, you'd be mixed around with other people that didn't speak your language and you weren't allowed to hear or speak your own language. You had to look, you were, had forced to do English. And then babies were taken away from their parents as soon as they were born. And so that was done very overtly and outwardly and violently. Whereas with the descendants of Europe, it was just known. It was made very clear that in order for you to survive and get the get what you came to to access in the new world, that you had to leave your old ways behind, and you had to become as white and as American and as modern as you can. So you have a bunch of people walking around here that don't know their lineage, and and actually have bad opinions of their lineage. Uh, you know, it's been a really intense and intentional project for the leaders of Africans in America, the children of enslaved Africans, to really teach how amazing the ancestors really are and were and the, and how the people in Africa today, you know, they're some of the most civilized people in the world. Um, you know, and then this, but the same is true for European American people too. A lot of people feel like well, my ancestors were slave owners and they, they were horrible and they were definitely racist. And like, no, you don't know that. You don't know that. There were a lot of European American people that were fighting alongside the Iroquois, or a lot of people that uh, were doing whatever they could openly or, or or secretly. What about all those people that hosted people in their houses for the in the in the Underground Railroad? And what about the the woman that snuck and taught Frederick Douglass how to read? And what about you know John Brown that went with his sons and just started clapping at the you know what I'm saying? This was like yeah, we're all dying today. Right, right. Or, you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. we're ending slavery or we're dying. There's no in between for me, you know. Um, or Abraham Lincoln's wife that actually convinced him of, you know, she's the one that invited Frederick Douglass. And, you know, these are these people are real, too. And, and it's important for us to, to know that. But I'm also saying that, like, culturally, I have ancestors. Spiritually, I have ancestors. Um, you know, religiously, I have ancestors. I try not to do anything, and this is something that Islam has really taught me, but any people who, who have real culture know this, you know, I cook and I make arroz con pollo and I didn't learn it from YouTube. You know what I'm saying? My wife is black and Puerto Rican. Her mother and grandmother make arroz con pollo and then so does her aunt. Hmm. You know what I'm saying? So like I learned what I could from all three of them. You know what I'm saying? And then I make my own version of it. But this is not like Urban Outfitters, Arroz Con Pollo. Like, this is like, you know what I mean? Yeah, it comes from a lineage. So, you know, those people taught me. And so in that sense, I have culinary ancestors in Puerto Rico. I also make sweet potato pie that I learned from, you know, that I learned from uh, black women who taught me how to make it because they knew I loved it. I also make bean pie. And my my bean pie, you know, the Muslims, they memorize their their lineage. So if you relate something, a statement from the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, you say, I learned it from this teacher. 
And uh, in the books, it was related that this particular person heard a statement from this particular person who heard it from the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. And you can't say a statement of the Prophet Muhammad unless you know that chain. Otherwise, it's it's like anybody could say anything, you know. And so in in hip hop, I received my hip hop understanding from Chuck and from Rakim, um, you know, directly. And and from Lord Jamar and from, you know, those are the people that I learned it from. And, you know, Chuck and Rakim being the main two and their lineage goes directly to Cool Herc and Bambada. So I'm basically two generations from Cool Herc and Bambada. And so anybody that I teach, they're taking it from me, you know, and these are the things that I learned. So when I'm when I talk about ancestors, it's very real to me, you know, that that Melly Mel speaks through me. And uh, but then also Melly Mel is from a lineage of griots, you know, and, uh, and of storytellers and of, you know, the cultural leaders that remind us what our lives mean, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, all that stuff is when I talk about ancestors speaking through me, it's not this is not just entertainment is what I mean. Uh, the track special effects, you discuss uh, technology and um, kind of the effect it has on our real life relationships. Uh, your dad. Uh, with two kids, uh, you know, son and a daughter who are in the thick of this, uh, you know, probably have their phone, you know, how do you, what's that conversation like with them? I mean, it, it, well, one is this track for them, but two, what is that conversation, uh, like to get them off, you know, their cell phones or the iPad or whatever? It's tough, man. Um, it's I need, tough I need as, advice for my kids. Future, yeah. Right? <laughs> I mean, the main thing that I, and I say this at the risk of being a hypocrite, but the best way to do it is to model it. And I'm struggling with that. Like, you know, it's not, I wrote that song for myself, you know, <laughs> but then also because of the fact that this is the first generation that's really had the, like done this. Right. You know what I mean? Like, uh, this is the first generation that like we get the news of, of a loved one dying via text. Right. Yeah. You know what I mean? It used to be, there was a time when, you would call somebody and you would say, where are you? Are you sitting down? And you heard the voice of somebody you know and love give you that news. So that news was de- was delivered from heart to heart. Now you get a text message, so-and-so died. Or uh, you find out, you find out like later, like so-and-so died? How come nobody told me? You say, well, I put, I put it on Facebook. Right, right. right. You know yeah. what I mean? And, and uh, yeah, I've I've really believed that the best way is to model it. So... I try to be conscious of the fact that like when I'm having a conversation with my daughter and I get a bit do not stop the conversation to like, look at the phone. Right. Right. You know what I mean? Uh, because just what that sends her is like, whatever this device is bringing me from somebody who's not here is more important than you who, who is here, mm-hmm. you know? And then Chuck gave me really great advice. Uh, you know, he said, talking on the phone is cool. Uh, all that stuff, you know, gifts, all that is cool. But when you travel and you're away from your family, the the best advice he gave me in that regard is let them know when you're leaving so they know ahead of time, so they don't ever just witness you just be gone. Mm-hmm. Let them know when you're going to leave. And then tell them when you're going to get back and do everything in your power to get back when you say you're going to be back. So they know that you're accountable to them and that you're coming and going, that they're part of your coming and going. And he said that'll make them feel connected to 
your your schedule and your work. Like it's almost like if you if you report to somebody about something, you're you're saying that you are my partner, if not my boss. Right, right. And so I've I've tried to really honor that too. The track Uncle Usi. There's a story at the end about you at the TSA. Um, is that a true story? Um, and was that the moment for as an artist? Was that the moment that the idea for that track came into your head? That so that's kind of a culmination of like a year of true stories. The first one being that I, I was invited to Iran uh, for a Black Lives Matter type of conference. It wasn't hosted by the group Black Lives Matter, but it was the the idea where myself and you know uh, religious, cultural, um, legal, you know leaders also like psychological workers and doctors, like medical professionals. We all went to, we were all the guests of uh, this group in Iran. Um, you know, that's a, that's a very common kind of thing in this like work towards justice is when you have your own government pointing the finger at other governments about their human rights violations. You know what I mean? And they're over here just slaughtering people. Um, you know, a lot of times that government you know, it makes a statement to go to that place to talk about what your country is doing. That's when you don't have access. So all of this protest stuff, protesting is there for people you don't have access to. A lot of times we forget that. And we have this like call out culture where it's like, if I'm upset with somebody that I know, I go on Facebook or I go on Twitter and I, I rant against them, Right, right. you know, and I, I think that it's activism. That's not activism. We do these things with the government because we don't have access to the government because we don't have ears of people listening to us. And so, you know, there's a certain degree of like shaming that 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 you do that's what activism is or that's part of what activism is and organizing and stuff so you know to go to iran is like i knew that that would be a statement but what i didn't know is that they had a plan it really feels as though they that group had a plan to among the other things they were doing they wanted to show the leaders of iran that hip-hop is okay because hip-hop is illegal there so they kind of kind of they kind of coaxed me into doing Uncle Sam Goddamn. And it, like I said in the song, it wasn't that hard because, you know, the fact that people know my music and like it is like it, it messes with my ego. And it, it, I went ahead and performed the song and they took it and immediately put it on TV and it was running on all the stations. Um, and so I was really kind of in danger. And then the the rappers in Iran that have to do it secretly you know, I didn't check in with them. I didn't plan to rap on TV. I didn't plan to rap. I was doing everything a cappella. Uh, so I didn't check in with them. And I didn't reach out to their community because I didn't know how to do that. But I never would go up to a place like Iran and start just rapping on TV like it's all good without checking in with the people in that community. Uh, this is something that, I was, that was just done on my behalf that I didn't have control over. So th some of them were making like really vulgar death threats to me. And my family and stuff like that. And when they when they showed the clip on TV, it showed the hotel that I was staying at. So like everybody knew where I was. Like there were people telling me very specific death threats and specifically the hotel that I was at. And um, I was just over there com like completely exposed. And so I ended up, uh, you know, kind of I ended up leaving early. Uh, not necessarily telling the organizers that I was leaving, the people that brought me, because I just wasn't sure what their uh, what their intentions were. 
not that they had bad intentions, but I just I, I, I realized they had a plan that I about me that I wasn't part of. So I, I had to leave and it, it took a long time to get out because credit cards don't work. The phone doesn't work. The Internet doesn't work. How do you do it? You just show up and like normally here, like you show up, I want to change my flight. It's 200 bucks to change your flight. Swipe the credit card. Go home. Not in Iran. You're not doing that. Um, so it took several days. And so then I got home and then that's when they started really harassing me the worst than ever before. They kind of always have done it since 2007 TSA or the government Uh, TSA border patrol. Uh, you know, there are people that come to shows that I don't know which agency they're from, but I, they make it clear to me, uh, that that's, that they're here to, to watch me. Um, and that they're keeping track of me. I've had people let me know that they're reading my emails. Um, you know, so maybe I just had an email conversation with somebody in the, in the rhyme series office and it'd be like, Hey, I'm, um, can, I wrote this thing. Can you guys post it to my Facebook? Uh, and then they'll write back like, Oh, just so you know, I'm taking the apostrophe out of it's because it's not, it's possessive. It's it is, you know what I'm saying? So I'm taking the apostrophe out. So then, you know, somebody will stop me at the border and be like, oh, yeah, no apostrophe and it's. That's, you know what I'm saying? That's, like, they're, just, they're that's letting freaky, me know. That's scary. Yeah, they know. They're letting me know. Like, we read your email. We know everything about you. And then sometimes they'll tell you the story that they're creating about you. That's what they did to me. So they said, okay, so you went to Iran. Uh, you also went to this to this college in Berkeley to study Arabic. So you speak fluent Arabic, you're traveling to Iran, you, you're going to Lebanon, you're traveling to, you know, uh, all these places. They start listing all the places I'm going. They start talking about all the stuff I'm learning. And it's really like, we could very easily craft a narrative that you're dangerous and you're up to something bad. You know what I mean? But after coming back from Iran is when it got a lot worse. And so just, you know, me going to Spain or like, you know what I'm saying? Somewhere that's like, it's France. You know what I'm saying? I went to France. Like, I can't go to France. I took my wife to, on our honeymoon to, to France, to Paris and came back and they're like, why are you in Paris? Why would you go? And it's like, it's my honeymoon. Like this city of lovers. What are you talking about? Like, right. that's what, I, I, how do you make, I don't know. How do you make sense? Of that? <laughs> Not but how do you, how do you keep going? Or how do you make sense of that? I mean, is it like, is this creating a song like this kind of help? that process for you i mean do you need that song do you need to actually write a song to help it make sense to you or do you just kind of there's i mean it's, it's working on a couple levels i mean one of the main things is like if that's if there's a main a really uh unusual thing happening in my life then it would make sense that i need a song about that right you know also i'm telling my side of the story so that you know I was very aware when I was there and there's been other times too where I'm very aware of how easy it is for somebody to either put you in prison and never let you tell your own story for you to disappear. Right. You know, that's, those are, these are very real things, you know, and uh, you know, Chuck knows about this stuff very well too, you know, that are, you know, making, making music and making a statement and really acting on your right to tell your truth you know, they're very powerful people that really hate that and they feel very offended by that. And they really just don't like the fact that even, even if it's like, I don't have necessarily like, you know, 10 million people buying every album that I make. It's not like everybody's waiting for the, what I'm going to say about something, but they just don't like the fact that I'm that free. It's just like, who do you think you are? Right. You know, I used to think, 
that I could tell whatever truth I want uh, and I could sample whatever I want. And I would only get in trouble for either one of them if I got rich and famous. And then it would be okay. Then it would be worth it. I found out both. Neither one of those things are true. They can sue you for a sample if you sell three copies. Jesus, wow. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And they can, they can, the government can mess with you, you know. And it, there's times where it's really, it definitely helps your spirituality when it's like you could die today. Like this could be the day you die. Um, or this could be the day that, you know, you start thinking about, okay, well, if they just grab me and put me in prison, my life insurance doesn't kick in for that. No. If I'm in a secret prison somewhere for 10 years, uh, there's no life insurance for that. How's my family going to make it? Right, right, right. So it definitely makes you, it definitely forces you to be in a situation where you're thinking about, you know, where you're thinking about the reality of what life means. Like, what does this mean? Does it really mean enough for me? to do all of this like why am I going through all this and I'm not even famous you know what I'm saying it's like man well I I want my life to have some meaning I'm gonna die anyway and that's another one of the things that people are afraid of the Muslims because we're very aware that we're going to die and you know the, but the, the lie that's told about us and it's told about us by, by Muslims too is that we're not allowed to take any innocent life or harm any innocent people ever it's just that, but this religion does give us a, Malcolm said it's the religion that it, that abolishes fear, you know, and I've not experienced it abolishing fear. Like I, I'm still, I still do experience fear in those situations, but I would be much more fearful of, of going back to the creator, having not done, having not expressed what was put in my heart. I have a couple more questions about the yeah. album. Um, there's a moment and it's kind of what you talked about, um, moment of like a thinking moment i think of the album it happens at the 247 mark uh and never learn and it kind of you stop rhyming and it music plays 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 instrument and then 50 seconds into the next track uh tremble you finally start rhyming again mm -hmm. and for me i mean I, okay as a, a brother ali fan who wants to hear him you know his lyricism that's a long time for you to like come back. What was there? A, what was it? When was this purposeful? And, and two, like, what, what what was the purpose for you to have that much? I guess lyrical silence. Yeah. Well, that was Ant that that did that. Um, he basically felt like you know I was I was going to put a third person on Never Learn, um, and I had really cool ideas for who to ask to be on that song, and then uh, Ant was like, No, you don't need to do that. Like you said what needs to be said. If somebody else comes in, I'm not going to put somebody on this song. He's the boss when it comes to like arranging things. Right. He's a real producer in that sense. And he's the one that I could never write these songs without him. Like really this whole thing between me and him is like a love affair between two brothers mm. that live life together and process life together. That's what he and I do. We're best friends. We, we process life together and we grow together. We evolve together the way that you do when you like there's there's very little gap between us. Like it's we're, we're becoming one person a lot, you know, and um, that music is just a chance to do that. Hmm. So, you know, I say the words he does all the things that are nonverbal. And so sometimes, um, you know, so it started out as just like never learn. He said, I don't want 
you to rap at the end of this song. I want it to go out. And then uh, that background vocal that you hear is Dem Atlas doing this like operatic, like this soulful operatic thing that was just so beautiful that when when he went in there in the studio and he just started doing it, it we were like, yeah, no third verse. That's the third verse. It's just him doing that. And then on Tremble, that song just made the most sense for it to let the beat build up and stuff. But then once we put them together and there's that that big space, it's kind of like um, it's kind of like a uh, just a moment of quiet to to let everything just kind of reset. You know what I mean? And then Tremble is really gets back to so the beginning of the album uh, pen to paper is about purpose. What's the purpose? Why am I doing this? Why pick up a mic and write a, a bunch of rhymes? And why do that? Why get on stage and make people listen to you for an hour and a half? Like, why do that? This is why. So I start out with the intention. Everything's in the intention. So the purpose, why? And then you go through all of these songs. And then that's kind of the, a quiet moment. And then when it comes back in, it's intention again. I'm a man, not a brand. You know, all of this stuff. Like, this is all me bringing. I'm trying to bring this unseen stuff into the world. You know, I think one of my, uh, it's, uh, I think it's hard, it's a emotionally hard track to, uh, to listen to, but I think it's one of my favorite, uh, out of here, uh, because to me it represents what you do so well as an artist, but also what Ant does so well as a producer. Um, the beat is great. It's not that quote unquote complicated, like not a lot of stuff is going on. Um, the great thing is that your voice becomes that instrument, that extra instrument. Um, as an MC, how 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 much are you taking notice that your voice is not just a voice to use lyrics to, but it's also a voice that a producer is taking as the instrument, uh, their their fourth instrument to their beat. That's man, that's so dope. This is my first time like talking to somebody about that song. Oh wow! Yeah, like you know, people hear the album, but yeah, you're the, you're the first person I've got, had a chance to talk to about that song. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's what that's what real music making is. Like hip hop music is music, and the the MCs that we grew up listening to, you know, if you were to just write their words on paper. It's like hip hop, hip it, you know what I'm saying? Or, or um, I was thinking today about the fact that Busy B was would get on stage and just mess with the crowd the whole time. You know what I mean? And he'd be like, "What's your zodiac sign? Is it Cancer? No, is it Leo? Ah, is it Scorpio? What is it?" Ah, everybody yell out there, you know what I'm saying? Bob with the Bob, the dang, the dang, to get to the rhythm, to the bender, to the rhythm, the rhythm, to the, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, you know, Kumo D come, came along and just was like, like called him on okay. it. Like, you're not saying anything. <laughs> You've never said anything ever. But Busy B knows he's an instrument. Right, right, right. Um, and if you look at the greatest MCs, they know that they're an instrument. So much so that when somebody just says their lyrics, like they just say them. Mm-hmm. Like they're not put, you know, that's why Rakim was such a like, oh my God, what's happening? You know what I'm saying? Where he's not like, uh, you know what I'm saying? What's my legacy? Yeah. And I, like he's not Melly Mel at all. Right. He's not Grandmaster Kaz at all. Not vocally. He's just saying the rhyme. And that that in itself is a major statement. You know what I mean? But yeah, I do think about that. And on this particular album was, I was trying to, I felt like I almost 
got too much in into trying to be an instrument and trying to be musical. So a lot of these songs, I tried as much as possible to just say what I was saying. But that really is so much a part of the art of emceeing. And there, there are people that are are great at that. And so there's a lot of people that are like, I wouldn't, I don't look at them as like lyricists. They're not like a lyrical, spiritual miracle, you know, but they're so musical that they're, they're up there with some of the greatest ever, you know, like to me, like I would put Nate Dogg with a lot of my favorite rappers, you know, with Big Daddy Kane or something like that, but just for a completely different reason. Like you would never think, yeah, 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 you smoke weed every day like that, you know, uh, but the way that he did those things and the way they sound and all of that. Are... I mean, same thing like uh, with cocaine. Uh, West, I mean, he oh my his, god, he, he he tells a story, but his the way I mean, he he, he his voice plays with Dude. the track is like is incredible. To listen yeah, to. he's another he's another level. But then you get those people that are both. So yeah. like Feral Monch is both. You know what I'm saying? And that's why you could say Feral Monch and Black Thought. Black Thought is is like that too. You know, where they're very very musical. But you don't think? I mean, I listen to you, and there's you. I mean, you do. I feel like you do both. You just not just an MC, but you. There's moments of you singing, or you know, or kind of stretching out. I guess the lyric in that way. Uh, do you feel you're not there yet? I guess, or is it? Uh, I'm, I'll never be where those guys are. But there, I do do that to a degree. Because lastly, is there a um, a lyric or a verse? I know it might change, but on this album that you kind of just blown away by that you you wrote, uh, <laughs> yeah, no pressure. That. Yeah, yeah, man. <laughs> I mean, honestly, um, there's 15 songs. I probably cried at some point writing like 13 of them. Wow, man. Yeah. You know what I mean? I, it's my favorite thing I've ever done. I'm not saying it's the best. I don't know. I did the, I, this whole album. I just showed up in every moment and was trying to be genuine and present in every moment. I wasn't thinking about is this a good song? Even I'm just like this is what I can add at this moment. And I I literally had no thought about whether or not this is even any good. And Ant knew that, and so he didn't talk to me about any of that. I would just say like, should I write another verse? And he'd be like, nope. I think you got it. And then I, and then I'll go over there and be like, all right, what beat should I do next? And he would he would play me three, and he'd be like, "Which one do you like the best out of these?" And I would say, "The second one is probably speaking to me the most." So he's like, "Okay." I'd write I'd write a verse, and he would just be like, "Yeah, write it, write another one." And I say, "Okay, how long should the hook be?" And he would say, "You know, uh, let's try a sixteen hook." I'd be like, "Okay," you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And then I, I I would be like, "Is this song done, or should I do it do more?" And he would say, maybe rewrite the second verse. Like, I, f- I feel like you could tighten it up a little bit. To me, it feels like this. Okay. I just literally was completely his instrument, only except for the fact that I'm saying what I'm, what's in my heart, you know. But this, this is my favorite collection of songs or just like statement or this is my favorite one because of the experience of doing it and what it means to me. You know, so almost all those songs. I didn't cry doing pen to paper. Own Light is from one of my teachers who's like a spiritual, like a father to me. He said, you're, you're, not, you, you're not using your heart for what hearts are for. And he talked about the heart being a receptacle of light. 
And that's one of my first conversations I ever had with him. And um, so I took that idea and made Own Light. And so that song to me represents this like a father to me, like a straight up dad, like daddy. You know what I mean? You know, and I just go song by song, like um, the song about friendship. They can't take that away. You know, I I wrote that song. And when I tried to deliver it to the person I wrote it about, I couldn't do it. Like I was just weeping. Like, you know, it, it meant so much to me. Dear Black Son, there's a lot of tears with that one. Um, out of here, the song about, you know, the men in my family. So, yeah, the, so like out of here, like most of it is just about what it's like, the process of finding out that somebody that you love uh, killed himself and like the whole roller coaster. And I don't talk about my personal thing to the last like four bars. All the men in my family have died by suicide. So I don't know how to be a man beyond the age of like 40 because they all die. You know what I'm saying? Or how do I how do I die a normal uh, I don't know what that looks like you know so yeah you know I mean there literally is all of these joints are like I cry doing all of them so like I freaking win in my own to myself you know what I'm saying yeah like literally anything else that comes like anything that comes out of this album being released into the world shows high fives good job people get them tattooed money any, you know what I'm saying? If nothing ever happens, it's like, man, I win. Like, man, the creator gave me that album. And I, and also I got to uh, have my friendship with Ant. You know what I'm saying? It's like, man, anything that comes along with that is just psh, completely undeserved extra sweetness. New album comes out May 5th. All the beauty in this whole life. Uh, Brother Ali, it's been an honor to have you, you on the library to Thank you so much, man. Using my heart for what hearts are for. They've been trying to shut us down our whole life. I thank God for healing. You ain't gotta get me lit. I got my own life. Thank God for listening. Listen, you've been trying to build me up my whole life. I thank God for building. You ain't gotta get me lit. I got my own life. I thank God I'm living and I know who I am. I know who's I am. When your wings I fly. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. 
Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes. The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last.